My name is Rob Auchincloss, and this is the Holocene Podcast, where we seek knowledge from the most creative, adventurous, and bright among us. These individuals are storytellers, entrepreneurs, athletes, designers, and everything else in between. It is my job as the host to take what they have each learned in their own lives and codify their knowledge so that you can use their lessons in your own life. In this episode, I am joined by none other than Chris Burkhardt. Chris Burkhardt is an accomplished explorer, photographer, creative director, speaker, and author. Traveling throughout the year to pursue the farthest expanses of Earth, Burkhard works to capture stories that inspire humans to consider their relationship with nature while promoting preservation of wild places everywhere. His visionary perspective has earned him opportunities to work on global, prominent campaigns with Fortune 500 clients, speak on the TED stage, design product lines, educate, and publish a growing collection of books. Along with his team, Burkhard is based out of his production studio and art gallery in the central coast of California. In this short episode, we cover a wide range of topics involving every aspect of his life and especially recent adventures, and I think you will find Chris as compelling and captivating as I have over the past half decade or so. You can find Chris on Instagram at Chris Burkhard, and I hope you all enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Life is either an incredible adventure or it's nothing at all. Hey, Chris, thanks for coming on my show. Dude, I'm super grateful to be here, and thanks for having me. And it's uh, it's fun to catch up post uh, expedition, and uh, while I'm still kind of thawing out in California. <laughs> yeah, and before we get into that, uh, I start off every podcast by asking each guest the same question, which is, "What is the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning?" Uh, you know, sadly. I think like a lot of people, the first thing that I think about is usually like, oh, what do I have to do today? <laughs> um, wh- which is a terrible thing because a lot of times it means you're, you know, you're kind of like looking at this, you're looking at your phone or whatever. Yeah. And that's a bummer because it can be, um, it can be really devastating to creativity. So I think, you know, that's usually the first thing I'm thinking about is like, okay, what, what, what emails came through? What fires do I have to put out? What do I have to do? What time do I have to be at the office? Um, but then typically a moment later, I kind of like think about like my wife, my kids, sort of their day and just like trying to steal a moment away. Like I hate nothing more. Nothing makes me more bummed than waking up and being having to like rush. Like I love to be able to like wake up, talk to my wife, talk to her about the day. Yeah. And then, like, you know, hang with my kids for a second. Like there's something so special about feeling like you're stealing away some time. And, um, I love my sleep like the next person, but man, yeah. it's great to be able to wake up and like have a moment. So I, I tend to try to, I'm trying to train myself to shift my thoughts and my sleep pattern to kind of be a little more focused on like what I can give to my family and what I can offer to others as opposed to just like what, how I can serve my business, right? Because that can totally. become like a jail sentence. Yeah, all, all consuming. And I, I And for me, it's the same thing with the work I do and I've learned that the farther my phone is from my bed when I wake up in the morning, the usually the better the morning is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Although it sucks to walk across the room and snooze your alarm 10 times. Yeah, totally. <laughs> that's, that's the only downside. Um, so for people that uh, are somehow unfamiliar with your work, uh, I'm going to try to have you describe what you do by asking you uh, through this question, which is how would you describe the work you do now to your eight-year-old self? Uh, yeah. So <laughs> – my eight-year-old self, I, I would basically say that um, uh, traveling is a huge part of my career path and what I do. And oftentimes, I'm traveling around the world photographing people, places, and activities that help that celebrate um, kind of 
humanity's lust for adventure as well as uh, celebrating the environment and trying to understand the relationship between the two. Uh, that sounds, uh, you know, perfect. And beyond that, do, do you think that, do you think like your eight year old self would be proud of what you're doing? I think there would be a lot of questions that would ensue. You know, that's kind of the, yeah. that's kind of the, the thing is that, you know, there's no way to really sum it up in a sentence or two. Like sure. I think so much of what I get to do now and I get to explore for work is, is really, um, based around storytelling and, yeah. and, and working with a number of different organizations and people and, and sometimes governments and companies and brands and athletes and just trying to tell different stories or trying to tell sometimes my own story and my own experience. Yeah. Um, those are the, those are the, the stories that are usually the most intimate, the most meaningful when you're, when you're smack dab in the middle of it. Um, and also too, I think in this day and age, trying to see where I can use my brand business personal, you know, uh, you know, my, just me as a person to, to lift up and elevate others, you know, and, and we, yeah, we've done that for a number of years through trying to like raise and, and have photographers through an internship program, but also to just finding opportunities to work with new creative people and to, yeah, raise up kind of voices of folks who haven't had the opportunity to, to do so. So that's, that's a big part of it. Amazing. And, and there's, and that kind of spurs two different paths that I really want to dive deep into with you. Um, the first one kind of expanding on the question about, you know, talking to your eight year old self, uh, you do have two young children. Um, how do you, it is eight. So <laughs> yeah, okay, perfect. Um, how do you, how do you describe what you do to them? Like what, what do they, what do they see their dad doing? Like what do they think their dad does? Well, it's complicated because I think sometimes kids can relate so much of what you do to just an emotion, right? Like, Oh, sure. dad's leaving again, or he's got to travel. And that's hard because you, um, it doesn't matter if you're like out, you know, saving dolphins or if you're like yeah. doing the, the best work for them, it's all about time and commitment and, sure. and love and everything. And so if you're gone and you're not with them, there's a sense of they're bummed out, you know, and I, I respect that. But I think one thing I realized early on is like, if I was approaching my kids and saying, Hey, dad's got to leave again. I'm so sorry. I don't want to go. This sucks, you know, but, but that's not the truth, right? All they're going to do is associate work with yes. something that takes me away from them. And all that's going to do is make them grow up and be like, well, I don't want to work. All it's going to do is make me unhappy, but that's yeah. not the truth. I'm really happy. I love what I do and being able to be honest with them and say, Hey, I'm going to work. I'm going to be gone for a week or two or three or four, and I'm going to miss the crap out of you. And I love what I do. I hope someday you find something you love as much as what I do. And that's like going to inspire them in some way to be like, oh, well, I want to, you know, I want to do something that's, that's meaningful enough to leave people I love in order to go do it. And that's, that's the way I feel. And so I describe to them, I, I tell them, you know, I'm going to work on a film or I'm going to work, I'm doing a, you know, I just was in Iceland for six weeks. It's the longest yeah. I've been away from home ever. Um, and, uh, it was challenging. You know, I explained to them, like, I'm going to go make a film. Um, then I'm going to go do a, a an expedition, a bike ride that I've been training for. And it's going to take us through a remote part of the country. And I'm going to be able to send you videos and try to help you follow along. And I, you know, I'll never be more than a phone call away really. And yeah, I'm just trying to share with them that experience. Um, and so, yeah, they, for them, it's probably confusing because dad does a lot of things and, yeah. uh, and some of those things are pretty obscure. Right. So, I think that's what makes dad that interesting, right? So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, kind of to dig deeper on family a little bit, um, 
I know that you grew up and you're still a member of the Mormon church. How has that uh, kind of strong sense of community, because I have a lot of friends that are based in Salt Lake that are also members. Um, yeah. how, is that, how has that developed over life, especially with children? And, and how has that kind of helped or maybe you know, created a better family life for you? Yeah, you know, I didn't grow up with a strong sense of family, really. Like, I was just my, myself and my mom was single. And, and um, we, we strived for connection and we strived for, you know, having a, having a more, you know, healthy, developed, larger, supportive family. And my mom eventually got married and, um, uh, and, and I had stepbrothers. And so it was like going from like kind of small family, just us, to like instant big family. And that was a really – that's a really big part of my – own personal journey and story and and I would say that in, in, in a lot of capacities when I was young you know I I, I joined um, my religion church uh, not you know because I was my mom was going or anything it was actually a Tongan family that was my best friends at the times um, and I would go to church with them and I didn't have a dad growing up so it was like I would go to go to their house and we would just spend the week the weekend like you know my mom finally a chance for her to get away and hang out so I would be spending time with them, and it was like I, I wanted what I saw there. I wanted this sense of connection, this sense of family, this sense of unity that I, I, wasn't, I didn't have at home at the time. And, um, and that's what drew me to the church, and it's still what draws me there now, the sense of connection, the sense of family, the sense of priorities of, of you know, having a, a, a family that supports one another and loves one another and knows that this is like the most important thing. And there's always that mantra that I've loved, which is like, the most important work you'll ever do is in the four walls of your own home. Yeah. And I, I firmly believe that. And I, and I think that that's the, those are the ideals that I, um, that I stand by. And I also know that the church, like any other religious organization is run by people. It's imperfect. It's very yeah. imperfect. Lots of totally. them are. And being able to accept and acknowledge that is important. And there's, there's a history of things that are, I'm not, definitely proud of, but there's also so much growth more than I've ever seen anywhere else that I'm immensely, um, proud to be a part of. And, and I love that. So amazing. And, and I know a huge tenet, so to speak of the Mormon faith and LDS is service and mm -hmm. going back on what you were talking about earlier and providing opportunities for up and coming yeah. creatives and photographers. And you're also very philanthropic with what you do with your time. Um, another photographer, Patrick Michael Chin, I interviewed him a year ago and I, at the time it was the first time you and I talked about potentially coming on this podcast. And I mentioned that to him. He's like, cool. I have one question I want to ask him. And, and he, and yeah. he basically said, um, he was super curious about all the philanthropic work you do. And, and he was just wondering like how you got involved, which sounds like, like the church was the kind of the birthplace of that. Um, um I think the mindset that like. It, it was the birth of a mindset, right? Okay. That, yeah. That um, if uh, <clears throat> you know, if you want to find yourself, you have to lose yourself in sure. service, and and that's like a that's a rad mindset. That's a rad yeah. thought. And I've always thought like, well, at a certain point, you become so unfulfilled with trying to just make money and collect yeah. the paycheck. Agreed. Your passport, and I think there's something really fulfilling about about simply finding ways to give back or, or, and it, you know, give back is a kind of a weird term. It just sounds like I have so much excess. I, I don't live with a lot of excess. I don't have just like money laying around. We, sure. we, we, we scrape by, we hustle absolutely. Like 
more than anybody else I know. But point being is when I have opportunities to share my knowledge, my time, or do a fundraiser of some sort, I, I try to do so in the name of something that I find noble and worthy. And a lot of that's been um, advocating for you know river systems in Iceland, or advocating for fresh water, or advocating yep. for um, for even you know just doing fundraisers around around current events and things that are happening in the world, and the the ability to use photography um, or print sales, what what have you, to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars over the years is absolutely amazing. It's so yeah. it's so powerful. I f- I find it to be like so fulfilling, really, and and I think that um, I'm not going to say that's the best use of it because. There's nothing wrong with just putting food on the table for yourself, no, your family, not. a noble cause. But for me, it makes me feel justified in living um, a privileged existence in some capacity, right? I love that. And, and I think you gave – I just was just remembering that I was at an event in New York City where you were at Paul Nicklin and Christina Minnemeyer's gallery and you talked yeah, about – Yeah, I remember you know, that. Yeah, and I, I, was, yeah. I was there. I remember we talked, we talked to that again, again there. But – I, I think talking a lot about to Paul, I think you and him had this long kind of waxing poetic, beautiful stake about like, you know, your work not only is incredibly beneficial, but I think something that you both said was you feel selfish, you enjoy this so much, but you're also doing so much good for yeah everything that you're trying, he, right? He said something really that stuck with me a lot that night. Um, and to kind of set the stage, yeah, I, I did a big, Paul had a gallery in New York City yeah, beautiful um, gallery. He's, yeah, he's a great, great friend and good person. And him and Christina um, had their work there on display, and they featured a couple of artists. And I was able to have a show there um, that, that did really well. And it was all about Iceland's glacial river systems, and all the work at the gallery was was kind of advocacy work, right? And we had an opening night, and as you said, you were there. I remember Paul saying something interesting that really struck me, which is that you know the answer to a lot of these issues we face, like you know. To, to, to help, you know, paint a picture, um, you know, the answers to fixing Antarctica's cri- – the crises that are happening in Antarctica, right? Extractive industries and people going there. It's, it's not about um, everybody going there. It's not about everybody jumping on a plane and a boat and traveling down there. It's about the right people going there. And I want to make sure that I'm clear. The right people don't mean the wealthy people. It don't, yeah. doesn't mean people who can afford it. It means the people willing to share what they're experiencing. And to experience something and not share it, especially when something could use your voice or your help, that, that can feel selfish, right? And, and I think that really struck with me, like the importance of sharing your work, the importance of speaking out for places, and not just everywhere, simply because people are telling you to do so. Like, I get it. The world is burning down. There is always yeah. a fire to put out somewhere, literally the Amazon or literally Australia. But as a human being, you can't care about everything. You, you really can't. You can't care about everything. Our, our minds weren't built that way. We're not meant to have 10 conversations at once. So I admire Paul's ability to focus on something something singular. And I feel like for me, that was my goal. Is like, I know there's other issues out there, but my efforts and my hope to kind of create a national park in the interior of Iceland or protect these river systems has been my fight and my battle and that's what I've tried to stake claim to and I've tried to focus on. So that was a really empowering conversation to have with him and just to learn like, okay, this is a great way to go about these things. So. Yeah, and, and it was it was beautifully inspiring and there are a few friends I have there that from that night since went on to go do more philanthropic work, especially around 
photo, video. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's always good to kind of show people that, you know, sharing is so important, especially mm -hmm. if you do have a voice like you do, like Paul does. Yeah, yeah. Um, so transitioning into talking about Iceland, um, yeah. I, and I want to break this into uh, three, three, three buckets. Um, first, yeah. did you know that the volcano was, that that was going on when you were there? Like, is that a planned thing? Or is that I mean, just... no, no, I, I knew that there was, um, there was an eruption that was kind of imminent and that this sure. was something that was going to happen, but I had no clue that um, yeah. it was going to happen when I was there. I mean, it could have so been weeks and weeks and weeks, could have been years, could have never happened at all. And what was so wild is I actually was on a project for about 14 days. I was, I was working on a catalog for Billabong and shooting a, a film for them, yeah. surfing basically. Just And I was busy, right? And then all yeah. of a sudden I had 10 days between my that trip finishing and then this expedition riding through the country ending – and, and during that 10 days, that's when it happened. Like the second day, <laughs> yeah. I was like, are you kidding me? I have this window of time. I went out there and started shooting and I got a call from Nat Geo because nobody else was there covering yeah. it. And basically you couldn't have even flown somebody in because they would have had to quarantine. I had already quarantined for six days. Yeah. So it was wild. I was like, what, what timing? I, how lucky. <laughs> you know, I just went there and, yeah. and uh, it was a really amazing experience. Yeah, it was wild. So kind of going deeper into that, you know, some of the photos that you've shared have gone quite viral, especially the one featuring, uh, I don't know who it is that's strapped at the top of a, looks like a biplane, but, um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so what, what is that? I, I, I've never seen, like, I've never been to Volcanoes National Park. I've never, I've been to Iceland. I still haven't seen a, a live volcanic event. I don't think most people yeah. have. How would you describe seeing like earth being formed to someone who's never has before? Um, the best way to put it is like, it's like a moth to the flame, you know, um, there's some deep sort of almost primal instinct that, that, that draws us to these things. You know, you, you've sit, you've sat around campfires with your friends and you've sat around a, a camp and you felt the warmth of that. It's a funny thing because for, you know, thousands and thousands of years, I think human beings have been drawn to two things like this and they've been drawn to these experiences and to sit there around this volcano that was a low silica volcano which means it's low flow it's not exploding yeah. massive chunks it's like it's literally just you know it's not gonna lava doesn't just blow up right it, it yeah. flows towards you slowly like you would mm -hmm. and, and 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 i will say for whatever sixty thousand visitors they've had there there hasn't been a single incident related to lava that's amazing or to the toxicity in the air, which yeah. is actually non-existent when the wind is blowing, right? It's like, these are very safe environments. Yeah. <clears throat> and and I can't think of a country better prepared for something like this than Iceland, who's dealt with this for literally forever. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that being said, to sit there at, at this natural amphitheater with people lining the cliff, lining the bluff, families, kids, it just felt so human. It, it makes me want to cry. Like it was such a beautiful thing. Like it doesn't matter that people are there taking selfies and doing this and like cooking yeah. hot dogs or marshmallows or what, <laughs> like, what have you. It was incredibly human. It was incredibly beautiful. Like you, you're drawn to that experience. You're drawn to this. And, and the funny thing to me was like, you're not out there on your phone scrolling something. You're just staring at lava. You're staring. <laughs> yeah. at, that's it. You're just staring at it. It looks like fireworks. And in some way, I felt so um, blessed to have that opportunity just to, to see that and to kind of witness it happening in real time and, and to witness that people 
are still drawn to nature. Like I can't, I can't think of another or better way to celebrate this than to know that like people are still drawn to these experiences. Yeah. I, I think, as you said, it's intrinsically human, this desire for us to want to respect and appreciate this round rock that we all happen to live on. Right. right? And just, just to, just to witness it, just to be a witness yeah. is like a crazy and awesome yeah. experience. I felt so, um, I felt so, I don't know. I just felt so like taken by, by the mm. fact that I was, I enjoyed it so much. Like to feel that warmth from this thing felt like somewhere deep inside you. It, it reminded you of like a, a I don't know, a, a different part of your life, you know, maybe sure. thousands of years ago where this was like, this meant survival because yeah. that's what it did mean for a lot of, it also means death. It's a, it's a beautiful yeah. thing. Just like water, mm-hmm. you know, it's really great for you, but too much can kill you. Yeah. Um, but that's one of those things like, you know, for Icelanders, this was what allowed them to survive lava, you know, yeah. it is, is honestly the only thing that has given them the ability to like cook food and have things grow and have geothermal energy. It's, it's really wild. So I don't know. It's like a life force. Yeah. And, and going off that, so knowing as, you know, we pretense this previously in this conversation, um, was any of it a religious a religious experience for you? Like, was did you? No, I mean, it, it felt it well. I guess if anything, it felt very um, post COVID. It felt really sure. beautiful. Like, that was the first time I had been around other people to that extent. Yeah, and obviously, you're in a country that like has done very very well for itself in terms of managing, and so there's mm-hmm. um, you know everybody's being traced and yada yada yada. And, and very low a lot, risk. Yeah, a lot of people, yeah vaccinated and. Although there was a lot of people there, it was very, very low risk. And um, you're not like shoulder to shoulder with anybody. It's a massive place. But that felt really beautiful. Like it felt, I, I just was like, I'm around people. And I, I loved it. I loved yeah. this experience. Yeah. You know, and that was really cool. And so I guess in some way, like it kind of felt, I mean, not to be like way over the top here, but it kind of felt like, you know, being at church or something like that. Sure. You're, yeah. you're sort of worshiping or you're acknowledging this beautiful yeah. presence that is uh, so finite but also could just take you out in an instant you know so sure. yeah i don't know yeah amazing. maybe maybe in some way definitely like a, a slightly religious experience I'll, I'll, I'll give you that that's a good way of putting it sure and and i sent that to my dad who is not an instagram user and he he also found it beautiful because he's like it, it's nice seeing so many people not like together for once uh mm. after a year of like everyone's kind of siloed but he said it was like, it's kind of like reminds you of like Woodstock. Like everyone's just there kind of believing yes. in the same like energy. Exactly and what vibe. I said. Yeah. 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 It was exactly what I said. You know, nobody's um, there like with music on like this, like no. watching TV. They're just like staring at this thing like it's a concert. <laughs> I wish I wish I was there. Um, and so going off that, you spent a couple days documenting, was it like a search and rescue crew or some kind of. Yeah. Uh, um, so ultimately, you know, I mean, in the. If I was there just for myself, I would probably have just limited my experience to documenting this this volcanic eruption for, to just landscapes and the beauty of it. But the reality sure. is when on assignment for Nat Geo or, or trying to kind of work on something for them, you're, you're trying to tell a deeper narrative, right? Yeah. And, and that was kind of my um, suggestion was like, well, there's a lot going behind the scenes to keep people safe and to keep people aware and to basically manage this thing, which is evolving daily. I mean, when I was there, it was one fissure 
one little caldera. Now it's eight or nine, right? So <laughs> um, their job was cut out for them and they were there, you know, we were there sunrise to sunset. And, and it was, it was nice to be able to document the search and rescue group, which is one of like the heroes of Iceland and, and yeah. it's a volunteer only organization. So amazing. Yeah. Uh, and was that your first time on assignment for Nat Geo? Yeah, I've done some other work for them that was just more image licensing and, and sure. um, stories I had already told. But yeah, this was like on an assignment for them um, working through that. So it was, it was pretty rad. It was a really fun experience, but it it took its toll. Definitely a lot of late nights. Sure, sure. And, yeah. Grinding. And I know, and I know you're you're friends with other you know highly frequented Nat Geo photographers like Jay yeah. Chen and Renan. Yeah. Um, do you think you'll maybe start taking on more of those projects? Not really, to be honest. It's not, it's it, maybe, you know, it's, sure. uh, in some capacity, um, it's not really my, um, forte, you know, um, I, I love, I love working on projects that, that, that oftentimes like result in, I think a film or a result in something a little slightly different than maybe some of the mediums that they use. But I, sure. I do think that of course, if the, if the story is there and if the depth is there, and it's kind of something you can revisit and, and watch grow and evolve. It'd be really, really amazing to do so. Uh, and I'm, I'm grateful to have some great connections there. People I've worked with over the years. Um, and, and yeah, and worked with a, a handful of the titles, Travel and Adventure, when that was in print, everything. Yeah. So um, it's always a space that I, I love and I, I would look forward to. But I also know, like, man, some of those assignments are really real you know you're yeah. you know you talk about time away from your family you're, you're potentially looking at months on assignment somewhere remote you know really embedding yourself and that's yeah that's the respect you have to give those assignments if you can't do that then don't take it you know and um so i feel in some way like i uh i just want to be honest about like and transparent about sometimes i think there's somebody more hungry more eager more willing to subject themselves and be away from their sure. family or take time that might be more better suited for that type of work, you know? And I think yeah. that as I get to this place in my career, I'm like, man, it's hard to leave your kids behind and, and do something like that. So sure. Yeah. It's all about balance, right? Um, it certainly is. And pushing forward to that. So the cycling expedition that you did across, so it was north to south, uh, pretty much yeah. like a center line of Iceland, essentially. Yeah, it was coast to coast. Okay. Um, so we started in the, the most kind of northern spot of the coast, the Float yep. Valley. And we, we made our way all the way down to Vik, which is like the southern tip yeah. of the southern coast. And um, yeah, we, we tried to pick a line that was the most direct, right? Um, sure. And without going over every mountain we could. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, we ended up at the end kind of crossing the glacier, right? Which was like the crux of the whole trip. It was the hardest single yeah. effort of the whole trip and we yeah we, we basically rode our bikes up and over the the Mideshoko glacier and it was yeah. um it was more than we bargained for for sure it was really savage and uh an incredible experience but also really brutal yeah, yeah really brutal and and if you know people that don't follow you uh you know i watch the stories that you tell and i'm i'm really appreciative that when you go on when you when you start prefacing that i'm doing this i'm like always get stoked because i'm going to see countless stories of this actual happening and yeah. you know having having used to been someone that that you know raced bikes and you know i think you and i actually have similar people in the same circles it was funny yeah. when you first mentioned this the first person i thought of i was like i was like this sounds like something rebecca rush would do and this is before i yeah. knew she was joining 
Um, yeah. And so what was, what was awesome. it like? Rebecca's, yeah. Rebecca's a force. It was really cool to work with her and, and somebody I had looked up to for a long time. So it was great. It was sure. Great. Yeah. yeah I, I remember the, the first time I met her, I was actually, uh, so I went to school with Payson, who I know you've, who, you've ridden with no a few way. times. Uh, so yeah, like yeah. Payson and Howard, at, 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 we were all at Fort Lewis together before I left and went elsewhere. But Rebecca would, you know, also in Durango occasionally would, would come oh on some rides. And they're just like <laughs> such a core, friendly, amazing group of people. Yeah. Um, and, and I do want to go back talking about this, this journey across Iceland, but how did you first get into cycling? Cause I feel like it was something where, you know, I've been following you for six years and yeah. I think it's been something that's more recent. It seems like than Yeah. Um, it's a great question. You know, I, I, I've, I've always lived in central California and my, I've had, I've had a number of kind of offices that have been a little, you know, close to my house. I, they used to be part of my house and in my garage. And then I, that I moved an office outside my home. Yep. And I lived like a mile from my office at one point. And I was like, this is ridiculous that I'm, I'm driving my car every day. I just felt so stupid, you know, and I started running there and I was kind of like, oh, you know, this kind of sucks sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, um, and then I was like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to look for a bike. Like, why not? Like bikes are cool. I used to ride bikes as a kid. I used to ride like, um, BMX and like used yeah. to like you know, ride like jump off staircases and try to be cool and yeah, um, I yeah. loved that as a kid like we we jumped dirt and everything and um, and anyway I was, I looked on Craigslist and I found a bike for like four hundred bucks some old steel Bianchi and I was like okay great so I started riding in my office and I just enjoyed that so much I enjoyed the process of commuting and realizing that like oh man this is this is epic and like I I went a week without driving my car to my office and then I went two weeks and then. All of a sudden, it was like, you know, let me take a little longer route. And I started to kind of like go a little longer route. And and then I took a little longer route. And then on the weekend, I'm like, you know, I'd like to go out and go see this place. And all of a sudden, I realized that all these places that were kind of commonplace because you just blast by them. Yeah. It became like an adventure and it became a new way of seeing a familiar place. And that's what I love. I mean, that's what I love about photography, like the idea of getting in a plane or getting in the air it's all about seeing a familiar place in a new way. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what a bike is like. It's, it's, it's about that experience. You're slowing things down. You're moving in a different direction. You're moving a, sometimes on different paths that you never have before, different routes, different trails, right? Yeah. And I just, that's all it is to me. I don't care about, you know, going fast or, you know, or any, you know, I, I, I don't, I also sometimes am not the best about like sharing these experiences with, yeah. Multiple people. Like I'm not a big like group ride person. Like I like the adventure of it. And sometimes when those adventures can be um sort of they can benefit by a a team of people that's supporting each other, that's really important. Because I love the expedition aspect that I've carried on from like working in the surf world and whatnot. But it's really significant to kind of see um just how appreciative a bike can make you for where you live, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just, I remember, I remember watching this like journey unfold on through Instagram and your stories and you were like sharing and it was going and it was, and, and I remember at one point you're like, okay, I need something more than my steel Bianchi. And then you're like, started getting into like the, the tech of the bike world, which is, you know, as, as you know, now is fascinating yeah. and endless. It's, it's like, there's a lot out there. It's too there's much. a lot out there. And then I think it, it almost felt like in no time at all, you were going for like the all time record for fastest, like circumnavigation of Iceland on a bike, Yeah, <laughs> which, which you own. Think, right. So, yeah. And I think that's the funniest aspect is like the place 
is everything. It's it's yeah. a, it's about the place, right? It's about the places you love. Like I love riding at home. I, I yeah. love riding around home. I like you know commuting, and I like um, I like going on like Big Sur. Like I've ridden Big Sur like eight nine times because it's sure. such an iconic stretch of coast that I've driven a million times, and be able to ride it is like so cool. And then. Iceland, obviously, I have this deep relationship with, and to to be able to move through that landscape in this way, it feels. Um, I guess it just feels um, super intimate. Yeah. Right. Like absolutely. you're, you're yeah. like what happens when you go somewhere and you can't just you know jump into an Airbnb or jump into a car or hide out from the wind and and I think the key thing is when you want to tell stories. Yeah. You want to, you know, be immersed as a storyteller in some way. It's important to realize that you need to be a part of that story, and that's kind of why I found um, that's kind of why I found like bike riding to be so special is because it immerses you in the place and in yeah. the story, and you you have something to talk about, you know. Absolutely, and there's also the added benefit that the the fitness you suddenly start gaining from cycling is is no joke, right? Yeah, you yeah. feel better in almost every capacity. <laughs> yeah, every way, and so. I think transitioning back into, you know, the, the most recent expedition you did, you seem to not just in cycling, but I've also watched this in some of your ski touring and hiking and just almost anything involving sweat. You, you like to push it. You like the suffer fest. You like the kind of the, you know, you might, yeah. run, you might run out of water for eight hours, but we'll make it work. And so yeah. what, what is that desire? Like, where is that from? And then what was the inspiration for the most recent yeah, the most recent trip, the, the inspiration behind it was really to establish a new route. Obviously, I I have I'm a novice when it comes to winter travel, like on a sure. bike. And this was yeah. I have ridden around the country, I've ridden through it on like a hardtail, you know, fully loaded, you know, bikepacking. And then I wanted something different. I wanted a, a different experience. And what I'll say about winter bikepacking that's so special is that you're not limited to roads or trails or paths or anything. I mean, yeah. when, when, when there's 20 feet of snow and it's hard packed kind of like super crust ice, you can point your bike in any direction and ride. And it, it, you're crossing lakes and rivers and mountains. It is so fulfilling. Like it's freedom. It's full on freedom. It is so cool. Like, and that's the thing people just don't get. They're like, why not do this in the summer? You're like, well, you couldn't cross the glacier, but also you're limited to a route that goes like this. We could just go like this or we could just, you know, it's, it's so yeah. special. Like, and so I think there's something about that. And obviously like, you know, I love the idea of trying to do something that hasn't been done. You want yeah. to explore the human potential. Sometimes that's your own potential. And uh, with this kind of comes the opportunity to, to tell a deeper, more meaningful story. And um yeah, I, I think in some capacity, the, the the desire to push oneself, it comes from just this, you know, once you get there, you know how it is, like you, you, you have a taste of that experience. You have a taste of this, like, I guess what it is, is this, like when life is constantly, you're constantly inundated with emails and calls and, and to-do lists and this and that, um, you start to become, you lose sight of, I think, your primal needs and desires. And there's a person that you can become out there on the trail, on the bike, wherever you are, that is very primal, that is very raw, that actually is very in touch with your emotions and who you are. And you're not inundated with all the BS of the day-to-day -day life. And it strips away all these things that, that seem really important but aren't. 
And I think that that state of being is what I crave. And that state of being is what I, I love. And I know that if I like what I see there, that's great. Sometimes I don't like what I see there. Sometimes where my thoughts and my feelings and my actions go are a place I'm not proud of. But oftentimes it's something where I really, where I really like, I love that because it's a purity it's a, of what you are. You're not like there to, uh, to show off your best manners. You know what I mean? Like you yeah. know, it's just, it's just super raw. And that's, that's, I mean, that's the point of existing, I think, really. You, I, I, I love how introspective you are about your own actions because I think it's rare among most humans. And I think that you, you couldn't have summed up what I asked for any better. So I really appreciate that. Um, and, and so knowing that we do have limited time on today's uh, recording, I'm going to kind of switch gears pretty quickly the next 15 minutes or so, just get you out of here on time. Sorry, there's an ambulance right outside my window oh, that helps get stuck. Um, so kind of segment from cycling, uh, I've also, one thing you do talk about a lot is diet. Um, and, and your diet seems to have changed and fluctuated over the past few years. Um, oh, yeah. so, so how would you describe your diet now? Because you, Are you still vegan? Um, I was for, for a period of time. I was, yeah. I was vegetarian for 14 years. Um, and then I was vegan on and off and, uh, and amongst other things. And I love, I'm, I'm a huge advocate of vegan diet. Um, yeah. and I'm, I'm a huge advocate of, of, you know, doing whatever you can to kind of offset your, I think, carbon emissions. But I was never really in, uh, I was never really a vegan because I, 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 you know, I don't want this to be taken the wrong, wrong way, but I was never there because I, I had a problem with, with people hunting or killing animals sure. or anything like that. Like yeah. I, in fact, I think that if you are going to eat, that type of food, you need to be very, very cognizant and aware and respectful of where it comes from and be able in some way to do that yourself. And so, um, what I noticed was that after about two years of being vegan and being pretty strict vegan too, um, I, I started to have a lot of stomach issues. And I think that a big part of that was just the amount of wheat and the mm. amount of, kind of gluten and the amount of carbohydrates yeah. you consume are just, I don't know how to put this, but like, I wasn't functioning the best and that was why I went on that diet was because I mm -hmm. wanted the highest level of functionality for health purposes, not yeah. for anything else. Right. Um, all the other benefits came with the territory, but, um, and so I've reintroduced like eggs into my diet and cheese mm -hmm. and, and a bit of dairy and, and then also, and what's so interesting is I've always kind of grown up with like a little GI distress, a little bit of this and Sure. I started eating that stuff again. And I'm like, this isn't bothering me. Like, this is weird. I used to think that this was what bothered me, but I realized that large quantities of raw vegetables and or just veggies in general that bothers me way more. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And I, I've just been kind of on my own little personal journey. I've, I've, you know, reintroduced some fish and like turkey and just some really simple Amazing. things. But, yeah. Um. And I and I own chickens, right? For our family, we have them and whatnot. But I'm I'm also like. If I can, and if I tried, eat vegan about, I'd say like 75% of the time, you know, like I'm, I think that the idea of trying to eat meat with every meal is a terrible, terrible thing and, 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 or even every day, it's totally Great. not needed. So, um, the opportunity to kind of have it, you know, on a special occasion or when you know where it comes from or when you've hunted it yourself or something like that is really important and special. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've kind of been on my own journey. I, what I would say though is that for me, um, going into any athletic endeavor, or um, I really try to um, try to take on a ketogenic diet. Yeah, 
right? Um, a high fat, low carbohydrate diet. Because what I've found is that for for endurance sports of any kind, you, you're operating in a space of like zone two. You're not yeah. operating in zone three. You don't need yeah. jet fuel carbohydrates. You don't need simple, simple, simple sugars. Um, cause you're not going like this, you know, you're, you're, yeah. you're not ramping super hard. You're, you're going slow, methodical. And in fact, oftentimes when you're training, it's the hardest thing to train for because you're trying to train in this kind of homeostasis. Like yeah. <laughs> you're trying to always keep a conversation. And I mean, the reason on those, on those long endurance events where you're riding, you know, like that bike ride was pretty endurance style. You know, you're doing 20 hour days, sometimes eight hour days, 12 hour days, big pushes. Um, you want to have a a sort of a fuel base that's that's built around long slow burn energy and so yeah i supplemented with like a when i was there i ate like a ton of nuts a ton of like salty foods a ton of fat you know if i could um things like that you know that i wasn't just like slamming like cliff bar after cliff bar because that stuff just you bonk yeah. really easily you bonk right? really easily yeah. Yeah. um so kind of going because keto i was about to ask about ketogenic diet something i've experimented with you and I have exchanged many DMs on. I think that was the most talked about thing. Um, You have experimented with exogenous ketones. I think the HVN. And so have you found that those work well for you? You know, it's, it's so hard. I, I, so I, yeah, I, I have, um, I've taken like the HVN like ketone ester, Mm -hmm. right. Um, when I've done like long endurance rides, I, I, I would take a couple and to be honest, it's super hard to like tell a difference only because yeah. I'm never riding and like a, I was never like racing, racing where I'm like, here's this race. I know sure. what it's going to be. I know what the field is like. And I'm like, yeah. I, I just, you know, did it so much chill. better. Yeah. I'm like, I'm going to go out and do a 200 mile ride or a 300 mile ride or whatever, some mega, you know, long day. And, um, I would take that as a supplement to help burn more more, you know, fat yeah. basically, or, or, or being, yeah, I mean, that's a, she's kind of a, I know what you're saying, yeah. but yeah, for basically, you know, push yourself for, deeper into ketosis. Yeah. Put yourself deeper into ketosis yeah. so you can function better. Um, but you know, what I always found was not so much that that was really helpful, but all the other things I did were more helpful. Like for example, you know, when you start cycling or you start any sport, you're like, oh man, Gatorade's great. And, and cliff bars are great. You know, I'm just going to, yeah. And then like hours, no, they're not. Like, like my mouth feels like there's a desert inside of you or something. So I think for me, just like applying simple things, like not, I got, you know, I stopped drinking any sports drink that had sugar in it, you know, just zero sugar sports drinks, zero, even zero carbohydrate sports drinks where it was like, it was pure electrolytes. And, you know, there's still some good flavor that I think that made like a, because what that does is it keeps you in ketosis, right? Or it yeah. keeps you in that state. Um, the one thing I've realized, and this is the one component, is like if I train in a ketogenic state and I train and I train for you know a couple weeks or a couple months, whatever, and then I go on my ride and I do supplement with like – I mean I'm in Iceland. Like I'm going to eat bread. I've, I've got to eat whatever. Sure. You're not yeah. going to like bring bags and bags of nuts or fresh avocados or cheat. Like it just doesn't yeah. work like that. <laughs> it doesn't work that. So when I get there and I do supplement with this food, I feel – amazing because it's like you it does feel like rocket fuel yeah but it's not like it's not like your body is now all of a sudden like expecting like okay we have we've had a little bit this is all we can use um it it you have uh metabolic flexibility right Mm -hmm. um flexibility right i don't think flexibility's work but flexibility (laughs) which which helps it is now and not to be really really great and i would say that i would attribute diet to a huge part of why i feel at times like i can go for a very long time. 
in that yeah. regard. <laughs> Uh, which is great. Um, and, and just the, the last the last kind of footnote on ketosis, have you experimented with fasting, like longer duration fast? Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say that in my normal training regimen, I fast uh, from 6 p.m. to 10 a.m. every day. Great. So yep. um, I'm usually doing like a, uh, whatever that is. Intermittent fasting? Yeah. Yeah, I can't, yeah, intermittent fasting basically. I, I can't remember the hours exactly. It's either like a 16 hours, something like that. At 16, yep. Yeah. So I'll do that. You know, sometimes you finish eating food at seven, you eat, you eat again at 11 a.m. or whatever. But I've found that that, it, it, you know, what's so funny is like that makes the biggest difference to me. That, that, that yeah. single thing makes the biggest difference. And, and there's even days where I'm like in between those whatever um, eight hours of eating, I'll eat whatever I want. And I feel fine because I've given my body enough time to process the food and to, and to do that, you know, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of like starting a big endurance day in a fasted state. Sure. Um, yeah. I've done like a lot of small rides fasted and all like, you know, but um, I do like to have that, you know, I don't know. Agreed. That, that yeah. base going. But yeah, I, I would say intermittent fasting has, it, to be honest, it changes a lot of things. It changes just bowel, but sleep patterns. Like I'm not a great sleeper. And what you eat has such a huge effect on your sleep. It's crazy. Yeah, and no one talks about it, which is sad. No, um, it's wild. And it's like, it, like, that's the thing that's changed everything for me. Like being able to finish eating at six or seven and then being like, I've got, you know, I've go to bed at 10 and I'm like, I feel, I feel so much more. Um, oh, so good. Yeah. Able. Yeah. It's really yeah. wild. I, I love that you're dove into the, the diet stuff. Cause that, that's always interesting to me. And I think yeah. it's a big kind of secret to, success in some ways no i agree or, or anything so yeah because i have been a strong proponent of intermittent fasting for a long time uh and it comes to a point now where people are like don't you get hungry i'm like i don't even think about food till like lunchtime like i yeah. I, I feel so good and they're like like i, I hiked uh I did like a 12 mile hike yesterday at 5,000 feet of elevation yeah. gain my friend's like what snacks are you bringing i'm like well we're leaving at six so i probably won't even eat till we're done and they're like what yeah, exactly. I'm like, yeah i felt yeah. i feel fine you, you just feel good yeah. you know you what's so interesting is that you start to realize you eat as a way to just, it's kind of mindless, you know, yeah, it's it kind is. of, like, um, but then the hard thing too, is that sometimes when you're doing these endurance things, you can like, you're like, you just go for hours and hours without eating. Yeah. And then, and then you can kind of get yourself into trouble. <laughs> yeah. Which I yeah. know you have, and I know I have, you get to that yeah. point where you're like, I should, I should have eaten. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, you start looking for food anywhere you can, Yeah, yeah. Uh, you go into survival mode. Um, so we have a few minutes here. Uh, not yeah. to cut off the conversation. We'll definitely have to do a part two sometime soon in person. Love to. Um, I'm going to get you out here into some rapid fire questions. You can answer these in as many or little words as you want. Yeah. Um, so was there ever a time you lost or destroyed like film or memory card, which you like knew there was an image or set of images on there that you were really bummed to have lost? Yes. Um, many times that's happened. Actually, yeah. one time my drone got attacked by a seagull. <laughs> and the seagull was fine. The drone crashed and we looked for it for like nine hours. It was yeah. crazy, multiple days. And I had all this footage from the day before that was like, I was super proud of and really excited yeah. about. And I just got too, I got a little too much ego and I didn't drop the memory card. I didn't offload it and I, I blew it. It was crazy. Where was that? It was in Avila Beach, California. Got it. Okay. Um, if you had a billion dollars that you couldn't spend on yourself or your family, what problem would you try and solve? Oh man, I think that I would put that towards um, providing more people with clean water because I think that's like should be a universal right that everybody has. And, Absolutely, um, I think that's the. I think that's like 
to me, that's like the single best thing that will, mm. will enrich people's lives. Agreed. Um, is there a story that your family or parents like to tell about you? Um, yeah, that I was uh, like when I was in sixth grade or something like that, I, I'm, I made a bomb out of an Easter egg and I put it in my <laughs> neighbor's yard and, uh, and I filled it with like a bunch of random materials I thought would blow up. And apparently they did. And I left it <laughs> we tried to light it on fire. I left it in my neighbor's yard. And then two days later, like the bomb squad came over and removed it from his yard and blew it up at a local field. Like a full bomb squad, full thing. And it was like crazy. I was like, I had no clue. It was, it was a wild, wild thing. Uh, did you get in trouble from that? Uh, no, I didn't. Luckily, the That's cops good. came over. They talked to me, and I was just like, I, I was like, you just have so fun. Tripped out, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, if you could send a single push notification to everyone's phone in a given area, what would it say, and where would you send it? Oh my gosh. Um, that's such a deep question. It's a lot of power. It's a lot of power. That's a lot of power. Um, I mean, I guess it'd just be something really simple. Like, like I would ask people, like, um, or I would, I would, you know, it's hard. You don't really want to ask a question because you're not going to get responses, right? But correct, yeah. Um, uh, you know, I would, I, that's so hard. I don't know. There's so many like interesting, you know, things that you could say or thoughts. I just, I think I'd probably just keep it really simple and just tell people that they're loved. You know, like that's, a, yeah, that's an I love that. aspect. something that like, you know, um, uh, you know, something along the lines of like, you know, you're loved and also like somebody is, you know, there's probably somebody in your life who would, who would love to hear that from you as well. Because I think, Although it feels really empowering to feel love, it, it's even more empowering to give that to somebody, you know, and, and to like let them know that you're, you're thinking about them. I mean, that can be life changing for people. Yeah, uh, amazing. And is there a certain area you'd, you'd want to push that out or are you just more generally? Um, I mean, probably all over the United States. Yeah, do it. Why not? Um, yeah. There are no rules. There are no rules in this, in this construct we yeah. list, you know. So, yeah, uh, and uh, so I you have two more minutes. Uh, I'll get you out of here on this last one, which is what is your advice for your future grandchildren's generation? Yeah. Um, I think if anything, you know, it's that, uh, the idea that we, we live in a society or in a world <clears throat> that, it, that in some way, um, you know, it fosters, uh, an environment where we seek after things that we know the answer to. We seek after experiences that we know the answer to. And for me personally, all the greatest things I've ever learned about myself, about people I love, my family, about this earth has been when I've sought out experiences that I didn't have an answer to, that I didn't know the outcome to. So truly in some way seeking out the unknown and celebrating the unknown and knowing that through that you will find yourself in an amazing way. And I, and I think that's, that's a valuable piece of, of um, life lesson that will always be significant because it's never going to change, right, in some capacity. So we, we need to be challenged by those experiences. We need to be challenged by 
by seeing how we react when things don't go to plan. And I think that's critical. Amazing. Uh, Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I want to make sure I I get you out of here by one, uh, as promised. And uh, yeah, I mean, do you have anything you want to plug or share for the audience to go look at, check out? No, I'll just say that um, I'm grateful for your time. And I I think that podcast format and long form conversation is where the world is going because we all want to truly connect and um, we all want to hear people's voices and we all want to like not just be tapping on screens. And so to me, yeah. This is really valuable and I'm grateful for you. And um, yeah, thanks again, man. I'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. Thank you, Chris. Have a great day. Bye. I hope you all enjoyed this conversation between myself and Chris Burkhardt. As always, you can find Chris online at Chris Burkhardt on most social channels, as well as by simply Googling his name, Burkhardt spelled B-U-R-K-A-R-D. And I, as always, can be found online at Rob Auchincloss or robauchincloss.com. I hope you all have a fantastic rest of your day.